What does healing mean to you? Healing, I think, is recovery. Recovery is self-centered. Healing is self-centered. But it don't hurt to have a doctor to help you. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. marks the beginning of our third season of Revealing Voices. In preparation for coming up with another great season, we are doing a sort of a listener survey. We are getting responses from people that read my blog and people from our social media and people we know. Mm-hmm. What are some of those about, Eric? Yeah, so the the survey will have six questions and just kind of the broad topics of these six questions are around how to disclose, um, ways to parent, uh, dealing with serious mental illness, anything regarding policies that may affect us. We have um, stigma reduction. Uh, how can faith communities be better equipped to support people? Uh, all of those things we uh, want to address and see how our listeners kind of prioritize those different mm-hmm. subjects. And there will certainly be another section where you can also list your your own burning questions. So we look forward to gaining some survey responses. Just wanted to share here in the in the break, a lot's been going on. One thing I, I do want to share because it's always close to my heart is uh, just the experience I had on Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in, in town. Uh, I try and make it to the breakfast every year, and this year's was just amazing. I've been going for about 15 years, and this was the most well-attended breakfast I've been to. A lot of youth were there this year, and the speaker was uh, the principal at Columbus East High School, and and his theme was on after desegregating in the civil rights movement, there wasn't necessarily integration that happened, right? Integration is a very active, community-driven process. And you you can't just assume that's going to happen upon desegregation. So he was just, you know, encouraging all of us to to take those intentional steps of, you know, befriending, talking to, being environments around people of other races, right? Because it it takes that intentional uh, integrative act to be more than just accepting diversity you know it's when you start including that that you really build the beloved community that that martin luther king jr Mm -hmm. asked us to form i think the same thing people uh attribute to abraham lincoln you know had he lived um you know not only would we have had the civil war but perhaps there would have been something like reconstruction where right you know the south would have been develop further and blacks would have been given more rights and integrated you know in in my basement here in the studio we have the poster that was part of king's last march in memphis and it says 
I am a man. I am a man. I, I got that at the MLK uh, Museum in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Every year I actually will listen to uh, the last few minutes of MLK's final speech mm. where he talks about being on the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. And some of his last words, he says, mm. I, I fear no man. Mm -hmm. And it just it gives me chills every time I listen mm. to that because, mm. I mean, it, it is so much like, like Moses. He made it as far as he could. He's on the mountaintop. He, he has seen his vision. He's blessing, you know, the mm -hmm. advance of this movement, but he can't make it there. And it, it's, it's just chilling and, and beautiful and, and bittersweet. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in that. Tony? Yes. We're going to have our wives on in, yes. in episode two. And since we're not going to be on episode two, we no. just want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how Susan cared for you mm -hmm. in, in a recent time of depression you've had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had a difficult. What I wanted to say is basically those of you who are who are caregivers yourself, we've just been married a little over a year, so we're learning as we go and we we haven't known each other that long and uh, she's not that familiar with mental illness. So we kind of are teaching each other how to navigate this and um, one thing I know about myself is that given my diagnosis as Bipolar 1, I can hit some extremely low lows and some very high highs, and uh, people have to somehow either endure that with me right. or shield themselves from— It can be hard to know even how to help, it, It's right? very hard, and this past period of my depression, it got to the point this week that, I mean, you could see it on Susan's— in her, in her face and on her body, she was just drained. I told her on, on Friday, I said, you know, we were supposed to go to the symphony. We had tickets from yeah. her daughters. And I said, you you know, I can't go, but you have to go. You know, you can't right. miss this. Life so, doesn't stop. Life doesn't stop. And you, you can't put your life on hold for someone who is depressed. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing... I always like to tell people is when you're in a pit, when I'm in a pit, the worst thing that can happen is someone jump in the pit after me. Right. Because then I feel miserable. I feel more miserable. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, clearly the best thing to do is to go get a rope, fasten it to the ground, throw it in. Yeah. But you got to go somewhere. you got to get away. So Susan went to the symphony with her daughter and had a great time. Good. And, I'm working through this. We'll we'll work through it together. But you know, those of you who are caregivers, you know, give yourself a break. Encourage your your loved ones to to not rely solely on you. I have a list of people on my speed dial that I call, and you know, I have friends beyond my wife. Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing what what Susan and, yeah. and Jen and and Sonia talk about. Yeah, it's going to be a good episode. Yeah. Now, you were supposed to take a trip to China. Uh, yes, and I, I just want to spend a little moment here, uh, you know, encouraging us all to pray for our brothers and sisters in China because this coronavirus is the real deal. Um, since I work with people in China every day, you know, I, I'm more aware. And as I've been going about the community, you know, people don't really know know the news. 
My trip is going to be delayed to China because precautions around the virus. And I've been reaching out to my colleagues in China. You know, it was Chinese New Year and wishing them, you know, and their families health. And, you know, they said it's, it's bad. You know, there, there is some fear. Um, a number of people have died. You know, I'm really thankful to have friends in China like that, or work colleagues, I should say. Yeah. And we talked a little before the uh, recording that, you know, we our show's about mental health and faith and, you know, this kind of trauma that impacts a, a nation yeah. and individuals and communities and economies and the world. Right. And, you know, this sort of uh, traumatic disaster has ripple effects that are borderless. Yep. I will continue praying for you, brothers and sisters in China, um, that you find peace this year. Mm. So, Eric, a very tragic thing happened in our community. Yes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a shooting that involved a gentleman with who was a veteran who uh, also had a mental illness who was becoming volatile, mm -hmm. uh, had a baseball bat, was breaking windows, and a homeowner, who's also a veteran, shot and killed him. There are some issues involved that are unable to go into right. with the police and racial issues, things that... Um, yeah, a, a big part of this story is around emergency detention, which yeah. is a you know, legal process by which an individual would normally be taken into custody mm -hmm. uh, for 72 hours and put in the hands of a hospital stress unit. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was ordered for this, mm -hmm. uh, this man, and the officers failed to detain him. Uh, they, they had contact with him twice, but they did not take him into custody, and then mm -hmm. that evening... He was shot to death. Yeah. Uh, and there's still yeah. some ongoing investigation. That, uh, there has been disciplinary action. It's not like it's being swept under the rug by any means, but it does raise some questions, not just of our community, but everyone's community about, you know, how can we best protect a community from someone who is having a violent episode, who mm -hmm. has a mental illness? Uh, how can we best treat someone who has a mental illness before it reaches the point of violence? We've talked on this show about, you know, the 72-hour hold. Is that really enough to provide stability for mm -hmm. someone who is not able to care for themselves? Right. Um, a lot of what we explore and what we will be exploring are issues related to this. You know, what legislatively what community wise what can we do as a faith community what can we do as families um, yeah. to improve this and, um, and in this episode we touched on this with Rayleigh uh, Rayleigh is a veteran and like Tony said uh, the man who died as well as the, the you know the homeowner who was defending himself they were both veterans mm -hmm. so that really I think uh, touched Rayleigh's heart you, you know, Tony, you went to the funeral. Would, would I you did. Would you share a little bit about the funeral? It was a very uh, somber experience. You know, I think it was difficult. The pastor did a good job of naming 
the elephant in the room of mental illness. Yeah. Um, allowing us to separate the act of violence, you know, the, the from the illness that the person had. Mm-hmm. It was just a hard, it was a hard experience. You went with my wife, Jen. I did, yeah. Jen and I went, and... Uh, she said it was the most difficult funeral she's ever attended. Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. I think it's just the beginning of what the family, the community, you know, the faith communities involved, the police department, the family of, of the homeowner that, that shot, you know, there there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. Yeah. And it's only just beginning yeah it, it is a tragedy mm-hmm. and uh this happened very close you know mm-hmm. in our neighborhood tony i am going to to write a, a little note and, and put in the homeowner's mailbox just mm-hmm. offer you know my myself to spend some time with him if he wants to talk and and share because the man has to be mm-hmm. grieving deeply mm-hmm. it's traumatic yeah Rayleigh. Uh, touched on this a bit during this interview. Great interview with Rayleigh. He is in the the NAMI Hall of Fame. Tony knows him through In Our Own Voices, so he uh, goes around the the country speaking about his own mental health experience. Um, he's very you know upfront that he lives with schizophrenia. Rayleigh is a proud Marine. He developed some mental health struggles after. Uh, some experiences in the military. Um, he goes into the fact that it may not just be PTSD that contributes to mental health issues, but just the age of onset. Yeah. Uh, the common age of onset for serious mental illness is 18 to 34, and it's the same time people are enlisting in the military. Right. And that was his case. And now he's a NAMI presenter. He talks to people at all. He's a bold man. Yeah. And I, I think that'll come across in this interview. Yeah. So thank you, Rayleigh. We have with us Eric tonight. Um, we're very blessed to have Rayleigh. Rayleigh, I met at a NAMI In Our Own Voices uh, program for uh, family-to-family class. Rayleigh has been uh, involved in NAMI for a great amount of time, and actually, Eric, he's part of the NAMI Hall of Fame for his commitment to In Our Own Voices and the numbers of times he's the NAMI Hall he's of spoken Fame. there. Now, is yes. that the like, Indiana NAMI Hall of Fame or the... The United States Hall of Fame? No, I am honored and proud to be a member of the NAMI National Hall mm-hmm. of Fame. That's amazing. NAMI is a national organization. There is a chapter of NAMI in every state in the United States. And I am also a member of the board of directors with NAMI Indiana. Every time that we do a NAMI in our own voice presentation, it's recorded. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the recording is turned over to national headquarters. So I am a member of the. So you're, you're used Fund. to being re- recorded. I've been recorded a couple, <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> He's being mo- modest yes. here. Yeah. A yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so I wrote a couple grants for NAMI FaithNet locally, and we had uh, meetings in back to back years. And got quite a few pastors to, to come out and hear the, the Faith Net presentation. Yeah. And yeah. 
that, that went really well. So those of you that may not know, we're referring to NAMI. It's the initials for National Alliance of, uh, on, on Mental on, Illness. On Mental Illness. On Mental Illness. NAMI Dogs. is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, that is the NAMI is the acronym. Uh, NAMI is an organization that hopes, wishes to try to help persons experiencing mental health issues and their families with education, research, advocacy, and uh, help people to try to live their lives better. Yeah. Both on, from the family point of view and that person who might be experiencing mental health issues. And you were saying earlier that one of your goals, and I'm, I think NAMI's goals, is to encourage those who need it to seek treatment. Exactly. I mean, because, you know, treatment, man, by itself, treatment can be so enlightening. I am a person, when I first experienced this level of where I'm at now, literally, it was scary. Yeah. And where I was at, I was on a little island called Okinawa. This was 1978. Okay. I was actually on active duty in the United States Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And I am a proud United States Marine. Mm -hmm. And what happened was um, I was charged with something that I didn't do. And... I had a psychotic break. The Marine Corps and the Navy did not diagnose me, therefore no treatment. Mm. And I started self-medicating, first with alcohol and then drugs. It continued on for years, and I was in total denial of my mental health condition. I used to even say at times, this, after I drink this bottle, I won't hear these voices no more. Mm. After mm. I hit this dope, I won't hear these voices no more. Mm. Right. The voices never did go away. They still don't go away. Mm -hmm. All right? But now, by helping to educate myself, I understand what they are. I do not ignore them. I just do not address them the way that I used to address mm. them. And my life has gotten tremendously better. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your military service, and I'm grateful for your service. Thank you. Um, certainly. You no doubt have encounters people who have mental illness that was either created by PTSD or triggered by PTSD. And uh, what are some of your observations of the impact of service on someone with diagnosed conditions? Specifically, that's another reason why I'm so nuts about NAMI, for lack of a better way to put it, because they also don't just concentrate on that person, but that person's family, for the simple reason that families are most definitely affected. Post-traumatic stress disorder is not the only mental health condition that affects persons who experience military service. I hear you. Persons experiencing military service because the av average age of service is between the ages of 18 and 30. These are, well, 18 to 34. These are also the same ages that a person can develop a severe mental illness, either male or female. For a male, the average age of onset is between the ages of 15 and 30. For a female, the average age of onset is between 18 and 30. And when I speak about severe mental illness, I mean specifically like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, major depressive disorder, uh, not just post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. I have had the ability and help to track down the genesis of my current condition. My current condition is schizoaffective disorder. Mm. 
which is a mix of schizophrenia and a mood disorder. My particular mood disorder is bipolar disorder. I experienced a psychotic break while I was on active duty after I was charged with something that I did not do, and I was busted in rank. My money was taken, and I was given 30 days of correctional custody. That's incredibly stressful. Yes. Mm. Uh, They actually have a working pseudo-diagnosis for it's called the diathesis stress theory of the biopsychosocial model, which which basically states that the correct amount of stress placed upon anybody at the proper time can precipitate the development of a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. I'm a walking, talking, living, breathing example of it. Mm -hmm. It is true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm kind of more than sure that I'm not the only person that has it, that has experienced it, but might be also experiencing it. And some might experience it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, someone out there will hear what I just said and have the wherewithal to seek some treatment. Because the earlier treatment can be sought out, the better outcome a person's life can be. If I had a good treatment, a diagnosis and treatment back in 78, maybe my life might have been different. <laughs> I love my life now. Yes. Right. All right. And <clears throat> some of my family members have told me they love my <laughs> life now. That is, man, ooh, that is priceless. Part of your story includes some homeless experience, correct? Yes, yes. So tell me a little bit in your life how you went from being an active-duty military servant to being homeless. Not addressing my mental health issues and self-medicating. Self-medicating with literally heroin, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol. If it was something that I could take and help me to forget things for a minute or two, Mm-hmm. I was doing it. And in 1999, I became homeless. And I stayed homeless until, actually until 2010. Was this in Indianapolis? Yes, sir. Yeah. I started seeking out. I had a moment of clarity, I call it. I remember I am an honorably discharged United States Marine. And that VA hospital there is there for me. And I started making my way there. It was a process. Uh, there was many days I went in drunk or drugged up. I could not get treatment for my mental health issues until I got treatment for my substance abuse issues. But yet I could not get treatment for my substance abuse issues until I got treatment for my mental health issues. <laughs> catch 22, right? Super catch 22. Instead helping you with both. They didn't help you with either one. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and I used to go in and uh, to the classes, which I was mandated to go to. What I would do is go in and relay. Here I am. As soon as I, I get checked in, I'd get up and walk down the hall and go in the bathroom and either hit some dope or drink some whiskey. That was how I maneuvered through, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I was in and out of the program quite a few times. And also part of that program was for me to be housed, uh, which I didn't take it as much as I possibly, as good as I possibly should have. I actually did not accept my condition until May the 12th of 2007. All right. 
and when I accepted my condition. On May 12th. May 12th, 2007. 2007. Yes. How do you remember that date? What happened on that day? It was was a day I actually started to stop drinking and drugging. And I started to throw myself into treatment the best I possibly could. I, that, I, that takes a lot of conviction. That's not easy, obviously. What happened was I got the opportunity to read my service medical records. When I read my service medical records, the words resonated. Yeah. Reason why? Because it was where the corpsman had wrote down what he was seeing and what they had told. They had to forcibly restrain me and take me to psychiatry. I didn't know it. I still don't remember it. In 78? In 78, yes. But they didn't diagnose you? Did not diagnose me or, and or treat me. And actually commenced proceeding to write me out of the Marine Corps with a bad conduct discharge. Looking back on it, knowing what I know now, didn't do nothing. Right. <laughs> so, so, so I think for some people, that would make them even more bitter reading that. But it sounds like for you, it helped make sense Maybe that helped you forgive yourself. But what, what about that? I realized that. Helped you? Yes, uh, that the first what would really help me was I realized alcohol wasn't going to help me. Illegal drugs wasn't going to help me. Leave that alone. I need treatment. I just had to learn how to navigate it. Right. Okay. When I say navigate, I meant with my medication specifically. And then how to work with my medication. But I realized right away, alcohol and drugs wouldn't help me. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped that May the 12th, 2007. Wow. So is it fair to say that for about 29 years, you were, you were struggling after the discharge? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely. That's not, yeah, it was most definitely fair to say. Mm-hmm. And actually, accurately say it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was a great Marine. Mm-hmm. I earned my first meritorious promotion right out of boot camp, mm-hmm. which is not easy to do. I earned a second meritorious promotion about four or five months later as I finished school, my mechanic school at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Then they sent me to Okinawa. That was a great, it was a great thing for me. <laughs> I know the statistics bear this out, that often we're born with mental illness, but it doesn't manifest itself until these ages of onset, which could well be as late as 30. People go into the military service at 18, 19, 20. So you may go in, like like you were saying, you may go in with a clear mind, but then it manifests itself later. In your case, and maybe you have followed the case of how the military responds. Do you see uh, some measure of effectiveness in responding to this, or are they getting better or worse, or can you really comment on that? I sincerely do think that they are getting worse. Just yesterday, I was on the inpatient ward at Rowder Bush VA Medical Center. One thing which I do now, I'm a peer, I am a veteran peer support specialist. Mm-hmm. The VA system has a little less than 1,400 nationwide. And that's to deal with 22 million veterans, okay? Uh, and Rowder Bush, if I remember correctly, I think we have now seven paid, maybe five volunteers. 
Let's go back to Tony's question and your response saying that you haven't seen the VA really improve in mental health care. Not the necessarily the, the VA, but I'm talking about the military. The military. Mm. Uh, reason why I say that is because when I was up there yesterday, I'm looking at the faces of some of the guys that was in there and girls. They're young. Mm. They're mm. young. Mm. Okay. Uh, I do, I'm well aware of the average age of onset. They don't usually put anybody in a locked locked psychiatric unit unless they're a danger to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So, and from what I've seen up there just yesterday, the younger faces, I did not spend that much time because the person who I went to talk with was resistant in talking with Mm -hmm. me. By choice, mm-hmm. okay. Kind of like well trained with motivational interviewing, but I kind of felt like with all the resistance he giving up right there, ain't no need me even going at it. Right. So I didn't go at it. All right, but there are a lot who I have had the honor to go at, and they are glad of it. Before the interview, we were talking about your work and help me out here, but it's with like the police academy. Would you share more of that? Uh, I am a guest trainer. With the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy, both the basic class, which usually have anywhere from 130 to 150 recruits, literally from the majority of the state of Indiana. And I talk on mental illness. I share my story, and I always try to talk with the officers about trying to exercise what I know to be called fire discipline. Fire discipline. Fire discipline. Fire discipline is utilizing your firearm in a humane way. Unfortunately, I have known quite a few people who have experienced suicide by cop. Okay? That is true. It's real. People do do it. They just provoke and provoke because they... Want the police to shoot them. Yeah. But, you know, the average police... Average police person or military person fire a lot of rounds. They fire a lot of rounds. And, like, I'm going to utilize my own example. I'm a Marine. One thing you will do to become a Marine, you will learn how to shoot. There is center mass, okay, the chest. Then there's that smaller target, the head. Then there's also that great big old target right here, that thigh. And the average person get hit in the thigh, they gonna get, they gonna stop. Right. Okay. Uh, I do. Be trying to advocate. Use a round and put it in a thigh instead of center mass. Center mass, you're gonna hit vital organs. You're talking about the chest. Yes. For those who can't yeah. see, you're talking about the, <clears throat> my the fault. Chest. It's Sorry okay. About <laughs> Sorry about that. We, yes. Uh, or, but I, I be trying to advocate. Utilize that, or if possible, three or four, you gang up and take a person down mm-hmm. without firing around. Let me interrupt here because I know people are going to have this question. Even someone having a, a psychotic episode. Yes, even someone have yes. I three years of my life I spent in a mental institution, in a state-run mental institution. Today it is called. Westfield Correctional Facility. When I entered it in 1971, it was known as Bailey Memorial Hospital for the Criminally Insane. All right? 
I've seen persons literally seen with these eyes. Little bitty people become super strong, but three or four great big men can subdue them. And I've seen that happen. I have been subdued by three or four big men, mm-hmm. okay? And then they put their handcuffs and shackles or put me in an I love me jacket. For those of you, uh, straight jackets are real. <laughs> I, right. love, I, I love you. I love me. Yes. <laughs> okay. And you literally, they do have padded rooms. I try to emphasize there's a possibility. I mean, you bend, 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 and keep bending some more before you break. Because that is somebody who somewhere along the line had a mother. And hopefully a father, even if it was a test tube. <laughs> okay? Maybe even had a brother, a sister, a uncle, a cousin, or a little dog, or a cat, or something that they care about them. The other aspect, there are people like me. There are a lot of people in recovery. Okay? There millions. Is millions of people. In recovery. Correct. I mean, uh, sometimes we have bad days. All right? And sometimes those bad days, people not knowing what to do. They do the only thing they think is the right thing to do. They call the police. Hopefully they'll come and get to trying to formulate ideas to de-escalate it totally and everybody go home or go to McDonald's and have a burger or something. <laughs> okay? You, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear you. Rayleigh, I, I, I do want to ask you, with your experience, have you seen problems with emergency detention and how that's been handled in the past? I have a story I could tell about my own brother, who was also a U.S. Marine. He was a Vietnam veteran who literally got sprayed three times Mm -hmm. with Agent Orange during combat in Vietnam. On approximately a week before he died, I seen him and his eyes looked like banana peels. Mm -hmm. And we tried to get him to go to the hospital. He did a lot of odd things that day. And we eventually, we took him to the hospital. The police tried to get him. Mm. And that was well before, uh, what's that word? Uh, like a quarter emergency of emergency, detention. emergency or a 72 ED. hour hold. Yes, or, that was before that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, we took him. And the doctors, they did admit him because they realized there was a physiological aspect going on, mm-hmm. too. And But the bottom line is, Agent Orange, I mean, he was one of those rare cases that he literally got sprayed directly mm. three times out on missions. He did mm-hmm. some weird stuff, long-range reconnaissance. I do an in-our-own-voice presentation at Eskenazi Hospital. At the recovery unit is where police do get to execute emergency detentions. And when I go up there, I go up there to talk with persons who are there under ED, okay, under emergency detention orders. I've seen them, unfortunately, have episodes and hurt some of the workers. They need to have more persons who have experienced emergency detentions and in recovery speaking about that. Mm -hmm. The reason why I I put that out there is for the simple reason I'm I'm a firm believer in as I call it, no decision about us without us. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. I'm a veteran. I'm a veteran that has experienced homelessness. 
and I'm now a member of the board of directors with the Indiana Balance of State, which we are meeting tomorrow. I've been there, I think, six years. Mm -hmm. uh, but we speak, I get to bring uh, a lived experience on mental health, substance abuse. You're talking about the NAMI board right now? No. No. Uh, state, Indiana Balance of State Continuum Care. Balance we, of State Continuum of, of Care. Right. And what we do, we help create regulations to help house persons in 91 of the 92 counties in the state of Indiana. That's also part of the reason why NAMI asked me to join their board. Mm -hmm. I was actually elected to the board. Allow You're in the me. Hall of Fame, Rayleigh. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you no. got to be on the board. <laughs> Let me touch but, on something, if I can interrupt. Yes, you're on the front lines, so you need your your voice needs to be heard on this. Basically, as you know, right now, if a person has a crisis emergency, you know, best case scenario, they get a 72 hour hold. If they uh, aren't uh, an imminent, you know, if, basically, if they don't have a gun to their head or someone else's gun to their head, they get out, and then they're no better. Um, there's now uh, some efforts to provide legislation that have something in between state-run hospitals like you mentioned and the 72-hour hold, something like an assisted outpatient treatment, if you're familiar with that. So what are your thoughts on finding ways to have something in between these two extremes. I'm all for it. Just like there's no shape, form, or fashion, no way no one ever can literally exactly predict when a person will develop a mental health condition. There's no way to develop no one correct, totally effective way. So... What's wrong with throwing everything we can at the wall until something finally sticks? Like right now, uh, over in Indianapolis, they have what they call the neurodiagnostic imaging unit. Allegedly, 20 beds supposed to be for Indiana Department of Corrections, which is now the biggest provider of mental health services in the state of Indiana. Right. But yet, they don't have any recovery specialist. I am an Indiana certified recovery specialist. Now, how, what I want to know is how can't we clone you uh, like uh, a, a billion times? <laughs> yeah, uh, you're not the only one, okay? Well, uh, I, I want to make sure we, we don't try. lose this point. Yeah, okay. go ahead. The I Department interrupted. of Corrections is the largest provider of mental health care in the state. In the state of Indiana. Yeah. But there are no peer recovery specialists no. in that system. Correct. What That's, do you think about that? I think it's a wasted opportunity, okay? And it's another something else to throw at the wall, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, look at me, all right? Although I did not have the luxury of a recovery specialist or peer support specialist working with me, but I got a lot of people who do now, literally throughout the state, okay? And we are having some great results, why not use them inside the walls? Too? Why Why do you think there is no peer recovery specialist in the Department of Corrections? I'm going to go out on that limb. <laughs> I'm going to go out on that limb, and I'm going to say it this way. Uh, another acronym that I'm used to, Coyote, call off your old, tired ethics. I see. Okay. Uh, maybe we can at least, and I'm, I want to go at the new 
medical director for the Indiana Department of Correction. I had talked with Bruce Lemon, okay, but he was the former commissioner. I have not had the opportunity to talk with the current commissioner. He's very elusive. On the back of Indiana Government Center in Indianapolis, on the third floor is the central office for the Indiana Department of Correction. Right behind them is the Indiana Division of Mental Health and Addiction. Well, they need to be good neighbors. They are neighbors, but maybe not all that good. <laughs> okay? Because uh, they are trying, I mean, but what's wrong with trying everything, you, everything possible? I'm just going to throw one out there. If you come out with a bug that is a cure, man, they should be passing those bugs out in every facility in the state of Indiana. Absolutely. Because as Bruce Lemon stated, 95 of every 100 that go to prison get out. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the persons who are there because they are there with mental health mm -hmm. issues, what is wrong with not tr with at least trying mm -hmm. or giving them every opportunity? So you talked mm -hmm. to the former commissioner, Bruce Lemon. Yes. What was his take on it? He was wanting to put recovery special. He allowed me. I went into the Indiana Indianapolis Reentry Educational Facility. I mean, they gave me, I mean, I walked in and out like I worked there. But I didn't get no compensation. I had the honor to work with seven guys. Yeah. All those guys are out. None of them have went back to prison. Amen, man. But they That's closed awesome. the facility. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? What does healing mean to you? Healing, I think, is recovery. Recovery is self-centered. Healing is self-centered. Uh, but it don't hurt to have a doctor to help you, and specifically a doctor that you can trust, uh, trust and feel comfortable with. My psychiatrist, I've been with him since July the 17th, 2007. All right. Wow. That's just a couple of months after... May exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And my current psychiatrist, man, I tell him he's a man, but if you wasn't a man, I kiss you. <laughs> this man has worked with me literally patiently. He listens to me. I used to didn't talk. My wife says, "Now nah, I can't get him to shut up." <laughs> okay, <laughs> which I'm it's happy hard to with. imagine you as someone who doesn't <laughs> talk. My voices stimulated me and kept me so engrossed mm. it was hard for me to talk right okay but getting back to healing you, you mentioned self-centered yes self-centered what does that mean to you it's about me i can't heal tony i cannot heal eric mm. i can help heal me okay all right so it's all about what i need to do to keep me personal responsibility and accountability personally in a personal matter. I also realized, even though I'm over 12 years clean and sober, I ain't finna go and try to grab no beer and say, I can have one. No. I got medication in me. Alcohol fights medication. I live with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is one of those diseases that will tell you, you don't have a disease. Mm. Ain't nothing wrong with you. 
because this told me that a lot of times I have a mental health condition that I need to address first and foremost for the rest of my life. My job is to make my life as long as I possibly can, do as much as I possibly can, take my medication, stay away from illegal drugs and alcohol, uh, watch what I eat, how I eat. You found a lot of healing through WHAM. WHAM is an acronym. It means Whole Health Action Management. <laughs> we have that in our mental health support we, group. We whamming up every Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Okay. Go ahead. Ooh. And just for our listeners, Whole Health Action Management, WHAM, is a wellness model. It's like a personal wellness model, correct? Exactly. Yes. Uh, and it encompasses the whole being. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like me, myself, I also, I... I know that one of my medications is alleged, well, no, I'll take that back, is known to help accelerate the development of diabetes. So I had to learn how to count carbs, learn how to watch what I eat to try to keep myself away from diabetes. At one time I was pre-diabetic, but so far I'm not diabetic. Good. So this is whole health action management, learning about it and then doing it. We thank you for coming on board with us tonight, Ray, and um, certainly illuminated a number of things about yourself and your story, but also um, about mental health conditions and practices. Just grateful for you coming down and being with us here in the studio. I thank you very, very much for having me, man. I mean, this is great. This is great, and I just hope that somebody somewhere well, go ahead and have that wherewithal. Have that courage to say, yes, I think I do need to go see somebody. And I trust there will be. Thank you very, very really, much. Really, thank you so much. Thank this you. A pleasure. A thank great, you, guys. Great talk here. Rayleigh was a great kickoff here to season three. Yeah, he really was. I was fortunate to have met Rayleigh at a NRN Voices program through NAMI. Yeah. Ray's been a lot of places. He's been everywhere, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Johnny Cash. <laughs> but I was telling Eric, it does seem like the old uh, children's gospel song, you know, go where I send the, uh, how shall I send the, Rayleigh's been there and done that and he's you know, he's mm-hmm. been homeless, he's been in the military, he's been uh, in psych centers. Yeah, I, I really thought he was very fearless. And, yeah, and he doesn't mind going back there. One would, would have the impression that he has the means and the wherewithal now to get out and stay out, mm-hmm. but he really counts it his mission to share his story and encourage right. people to get treatment. And now he's really sought after. Yeah, I think uh, people in uh, both positions of decision-making mm-hmm. and people who, who are struggling and look to him for guidance and encouragement. Yeah, he had that uh, nothing about us without us. And that's a fairly common NAMI phrase, basically implying that, you know, unless you have lived experience you shouldn't be making all the decisions exactly right and i would support that i i think uh sometimes that's overlooked i should have a say right representation without or what is that no taxation without representation (laughs) no medication (laughs) without representation no medication (laughs) 
without representation. <laughs> that's a good. That sentence. is a good line. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. He's been everywhere, right? And he's seen a lot of models of care. And he talked about peer recovery. It sounds like he does that in a lot of different context. He's not employed specifically by any organization. In fact, he said he's been offered but would not accept like at the VA. And he contrasted the VA uh, being one of the systems that has a lot of peer recovery specialists with the Department of Corrections, which he said has none. And I thought that was a very stark contrast and you know something I'd like to really follow up on to see why that's the case. Because as he mentioned, the Department of Corrections is the largest provider of mental health care services in the state of Indiana. I like Drayley's perspective. I mean, you can have a different philosophy on what works better than others. But his perspective was basically, you know, it's not working now. So why not just throw all your resources together at the problem and see what sticks? That's right. And peer recovery specialists, are they're not an expensive model, and it has been at least anecdotally proven to work. Um, I'm very supportive of yeah. peer recovery. And as an, um, as it may not be a profession. broad scale. I mean, it may not be an approach that all of DOC can take. Right. Certainly, you want to have medical professionals involved, but mm-hmm. I, think, I think you're right. I think yeah. we need to get some involved. The other point I want to make from this interview was he talked about WAM, the whole health action management, as one of the key areas of healthy decision-making in his life, uh, where he identifies things that keep him well and creates discipline around those things to to stay well. And uh, it was really cool because we do use that in our Faithful Friends ministry and to hear someone like Rayleigh in the NAMI Hall of Fame say he personally mm-hmm. uses that was really cool. I don't hear a lot of people talk about Wham. No. Well, thank you, Rayleigh. Yes. Keep up the great work you're doing. What do we have on tap coming up, Eric? Well, I think we're having a uh, podcast takeover. Yes. By our beautiful wives. Rumor has it there will be a coup. Yes. Jen Riddle and Susan Roberts. I have uh, there's rumbling in the uh, in the making that they want to take over the mics for a session. Yes. Yeah, basically getting a perspective on it that we can't readily provide, you know, from the loved one's perspective, you know, what is it like to live with and or love someone with a mental illness? Right. And they'll be able to raise questions and share stories that we would not think of. Yeah, that'll be great. Thank you, ladies. Look forward to it. Very much. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. Do we know our history, Tony? No, we don't. Damn it.
Sorry. We're podcasters. <laughs> if you want to know history, go to the stuff you should have learned in history. Yes, That's yes. Pretty good podcast. Yes. We just make this stuff up. That's right. There's a Lyndon Johnson and an Andrew Jackson. <laughs> the question is, an is there Johnson. an Andrew no. Johnson? 